Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we're talking about bad breath, specifically the breath of a couple French bulldogs that led our next guest to starting a successful business selling products for dogs. Now, in this episode, there is tons of great insight from Chad on building an audience on a shoestring and driving five-star reviews by appealing to your customers emotionally. I want you to pay special attention to how Chad created a BATNA, essentially his plan B, if a negotiation to sell his business were to fall through. And if you want to learn more about BATNAs, I've added a description and some links on Chad's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. Now, without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with Chad McGilsey. Enjoy. Chad McGilsey, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about Pets or Kids 2. You've got a great origin story, so I just want to hear how you got into this business. Um, yeah, so it's it's partially organic, just based on my two French bulldogs, uh, Brock and Beast. So I was a uh, real estate agent for a number of years and um, wanted more of a, let's call it a lifestyle design kind of business where basically I didn't want my phone to ring. Um, I was I was sick of being on call for anybody. Uh, so I decided I wanted to create some sort of business. And, and I don't know if it was the YouTube algorithm that got me or, or something, but a little bit of searching on my end led to some entrepreneurship podcasts. And, you know, I would go for walks in the woods outside my house and, and listen to um, entrepreneurship podcasts. Um, found some stuff about building an e-commerce brand. Uh, knew I wanted to do something in, in that vein. And then I was just sitting with my dogs on the couch watching TV. And they're, I call them adorable little monsters. They're little French bulldogs. There's like, it's, it's like having a Disney Pixar monster for a pet, but you know, cuddling on my shoulder as cute as can be, but just rancid breath. And the, the bad dog breath became the inspiration for my brand's first product. Um, which was a, a pet dental spray. And, and then that kind of got the snowball rolling and, and had a, a fun few years building that company and then had an exit. So talk about the, the, the decision to go on Amazon, maybe walk through. My understanding is that, that you, you distributed your products, largely Amazon, Chewy, and a little bit on your website. Have I got those three channels right? Yeah, yeah. And, and for anybody who's not familiar with, with the pet market, um, Chewy.com is a fantastic secondary marketplace. Um, I say secondary to Amazon. Amazon is most, most people's largest marketplace unless they go the, you know, Facebook ads to Shopify or ClickFunnels route. But, um, for a third party marketplace, Amazon is, is kind of still the, the king. Uh, a lot of industries do not have a good secondary marketplace though. Um, the pet industry thankfully does, and that's Chewy.com. And they were probably 30% of my my sales. And what um, proportion yeah. was Amazon? Amazon would have been 60, 65. Got it. You know, and, you know, five to 10 on my own website. Got it. And what was the product itself? You mentioned dental spray. So is this something you cooked up in your, you know, on your, on your, on your, uh, on your stove, oh, or what, 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 what? Like, how did you come no. up with a dental spray? Um, calling a lot of suppliers 
and having conversations about what is currently available and what formulas we could tweak. Um, something that I did and that I I think is is a good move for anybody releasing a product is to find out how you can clearly differentiate your product from what else is out there. So what I did is um, research you know other dog dental products that were in the market. Um, there were some very successful ones, but if you looked at their negative reviews, there was a pretty consistent pattern. And in the case of what was available at the time, dog dental products, a lot of them uh, included uh, ingredients, uh, one particular ingredient being grain alcohol, that there were some studies that you know provided enough worry where people would not want to give that to their dog. So you'd see you know, a lot of one, two star reviews being like, well, it works, but it has grain alcohol and that could be poisoning my dog. I don't want it. So I, I talked to, I don't know, 20 suppliers or something and said, hey, you know, what what formulas can you make and what can we swap out instead of uh, grain alcohol? And then I, I was able to come to market with a pretty clear differentiating factor on the product level being where it didn't have grain alcohol. And then, you know, the brand was kind of built around, um, you know, the brand name, Pets are Kids too. And, and kind Got of it. So the business model here was to to buy the product from a, a supplier, brand it with a kind of friendly pets or kids to sort of brand, and then market it on uh, through e-commerce channels, Amazon, Chewy, and your own website. Am I getting the business model generally right? Pretty close. The one the one tweak there is having them change the formula. Um, a strictly private label brand, for example, would take an existing formula and just slap their label on it and, and market it as their own. Um, the other side of that coin is like a fully customized formula where you have a lab design it from from scratch and, and build that up. Um, my business model was somewhere in between those. I wanted a my own formula, but instead of having a custom formula from zero, I talked to suppliers about what existing formulas they're already familiar with that we could tweak in a way that would make them better. So that's kind of that. That's super helpful. How big was your first order uh, with the manufacturer? And my next question is going to be, how did you finance that? Uh, It was small. My first order was, I think, 800 units, um, you know, relatively cheap to source product. Uh, I I think my first order was only a couple grand. So I just paid it out of pocket. Um, And I, you know, like I said, I talked to 20 some suppliers. Some of them wanted, you know, 5,000 units, which would have been, I don't know, 20 grand or 30 grand or something for their first order. Um, I was able to find a supplier who I kind of showed my business plan to, showed my growth plan and said, hey, we need to do a smaller test order to confirm quality and confirm that we're going to work together. But here are my plans moving forward. Um, I think it helped that we discussed price breaks on you know, price for 800 units, price for 1,200 units, price for 2,000 units, 3,000, 5,000. So that one showed that I'm serious about scaling this, but it also helped me understand what my ROI will be at the beginning, but also what it can be as I hit different um, quantity of orders and and get, you know, on a per unit basis, um, better margins. So it helped me kind of future plan as well. Got it. This is my ignorance coming out, so forgive me. So, so you get the supplier, you get them to tweak the formula. Do you send your logo to them to print the label and then ship it from their manufacturing facility to like an Amazon fulfillment center? Is that how it works? That, do, you take, the, do you take it? 
Like, do you yeah, take that, it in your home and then like you're manually putting stickers on the side of bottles? Like, how does that nothing, work? Nothing like that. Nothing like that. That's the simple way to do it. And that was an option. However, um, my supplier could only do kind of these standard white bottles with a standard like four by six stick on label. And that that's what all of the competitors at the time did. They all were white or clear bottles with a stick on label. Um, I wanted to, and I should have just grabbed one of my products to have here, but anybody can look it up. You know, pets, your kids too, they're, they're still in existence. Um, but I, I wanted a full body shrink sleeve label that covered the whole thing and gave it a much more um, sleek, high quality, premium product experience. So I had my supplier bottle them, but then they shipped everything to my label supplier who could do full body shrink sleeve labels as opposed to you know, standard stick on labels. And then they would send it to um, Amazon, Chewy or, you know, a 3PL for my, my sales. There. 3PL being a third party. Yeah. Uh, ship Bob, uh, any of those guys. And then they can ship orders from, you know, my Shopify sale. If um, someone had had complains that their product was uh, damaged during shipping or something. And instead of having to deal with Amazon, if I got wind of that, I just have my VA proactively send a replacement, um, and like a third party through PL. And, and what did you sell the, the dog spray for? Like the best, the bad breath spray. Um, it shifted, but anywhere between 15, 20 bucks. Okay. So, so if I'm doing the math for it, 800 units, a couple grand, two to $3 a unit, you're selling it for 15. So you're like 10 X, no, not 10 Xing, five Xing the, the, the price that your, your, you know, your costs. So there's a lot of margin there to play with, to pay for the label, the shipping, Amazon fee. Yeah. Like you've got a fat yeah, margin. Fulfillment costs eat up a, a big portion of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had pretty good margins on my products. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and how did you get from the, the, breath spray to the next product? What was that journey like? Well, so, I mean, I, I, I made the brand first um, and the brand was largely based around the needs of my dogs. Uh, I say largely, cause obviously there's product research and, and stuff involved with that as well. But the question that I always ask as a brand owner is, okay, what, what is my customer's customer journey? And it, you don't have to be your own target market, but in my opinion, it makes business easier and, and more fun when you sure. are. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm thinking with my dogs, okay, the next obvious thing is their breath stinks. You know, sometimes their body stinks too. So the next, and they were very itchy. So my next product was a anti-itch oatmeal shampoo that also had a very great smell. Um, so I, I first researched, you know, possibly a hundred or so products that I could release in my brand. Um, I narrowed that down by my own needs and like what my dogs would want, what my friends with dogs would want and what, you know, keyword research, competitor analysis, all of that stuff too, and kind of mended or melded traditional business research with my own kind of gut instincts, what my dogs need and what my friend's dogs needs. And, um, yeah, I narrowed my products down to like a, a top 10 list and then ended up releasing six of the top 10 eventually. How did you get yours to rank on Amazon's search engine? Well, um, Amazon is constantly changing. So um, whenever this podcast goes out live, it might be even be slightly different by then. 
But the, the general rule of thumb is um, the reason Amazon can be such an asset or such a great sales channel is, is you rank for keywords organically, and then you're getting organic sales that you're not paying advertising dollars for. Um, so I first built an audience. I had an email list and a Facebook group uh, of my audience of people that were kind of supportive of the brand, behind the brand, um, were excited about pre-sale stuff. Um, and then we would you know, have a few keywords we were trying to target. Bad dog breath was one of them. Uh, I think dog breath spray was another one or dog pup, puppy breath or you know, a few main keywords that you know, we did research on to see that uh, you know, there's a lot of search volume for these. And then um, when we launched the product, you know, had people um, advise people to search for the product uh, you know, through certain keywords and they did so. And we had enough sales that the landing stuck in Amazon's um, search results so that when people would, um, once my list was depleted, my list of pre-buyers, once that was depleted, the product had enough keyword ranking where um, it was staying in the search results. And then I could do some pay-per-click to supplement that. Um, but basically get it to rank. So you're getting organic sales and then pour all the money from those sales back into the next inventory order. How'd you build the audience? Uh, I made a Facebook group and an email list. And this is going to sound overly simple, but it was me holding you know, my two they're very photogenic, good looking dogs. So I'm sure that helped me holding my two adorable dogs. And it was, um, you know, are, are your pets, your kids like our page or join our group. And I ran that as like a $5 a day ad and got a decent amount of people in there. Um, I did a, uh, what we call a, um, a viral giveaway campaign after I had a, a base group of people that, you know, I knew were dog lovers and we'd do a viral giveaway campaign where they'd win, you know, $100 worth of pet products. Um, and they, to participate in the campaign, they'd invite other dog owners uh, and then they'd have to take certain actions like watch a, uh, I call it an indoctrination video about the brand, um, join the Facebook group, join the email list. And that helped build the audience up um, substantially as well. Did I hear you say you, you spent $5 a day on ads? I'm just the initial ads to get people to join a Facebook group. It's just like a one simple, like I said, it's, it sounds overly simple. Um, and I'm not saying that's all you need to do now to do it, but like to, to get my initial audience going. Yeah. I invited some friends and family. So I always, I always tell people it's, it's important to seed the audience, especially if you have a Facebook group or something interactive, because it's kind of like going to a party. Unless it's your best friend, nobody wants to be the first one at the party. So I, I had friends and family kind of seed my, Facebook group, then I would run ads to other dog people to get them to join. Then once I had a pretty solid base, then I did you know what I called the audience multiplier campaign, which was the viral giveaway to get more people in. How big was your audience before you launched your first product? I think about a thousand people. A thousand people between the email list and the Facebook group in total? No, because most of them were the same people in both. I, you know, I, I tried real hard to get, um, I, I like the idea of, of the traffic triangle and trying to have people in, in three different, like an email list, an Instagram or some traffic source, and then a, a, a Facebook group or some interactive group. Um, so yeah, most of the people that were on my email list were also in the group um, and vice versa. Got it. I've never heard that term, the traffic triangle. Explain that. 
So I'll credit um, Ryan Moran with this. Um, the idea behind the traffic triangle is kind of the human psychology is if you know somebody in three different places, you kind of consider them a friend. Like if you just see them at work, they're just a work colleague. If you see them at work and go to the same church, you know, that gives some more validity. If they're also on your pickleball league and you go to the same church and they're a work colleague, suddenly they're a friend that you know, like, and trust. You know, and that's kind of that idea with the traffic triangle being um, having a, a traffic source, which could be Instagram, could be you know, anything that brings traffic, an email list, because email seems to still work best for a conversion mechanism for sales. And then, um, you know, what we call like a hopper, which is really just a, a Facebook group. I think Travis Sago first coined that term and then Ryan Moran uses it and now I use it. Um, but a hopper is, is an interactive community, it could be a Discord channel. I, I like Facebook groups because it's got the broadest adaption or adoption. Um, but having people in that where each each corner of the triangle feeds the other. So in your email list, you're saying, hey, here's some of the highlights of the Facebook group this week. Um, and your your audience is seeing you in multiple places. So cool. How big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? You mean the audience size or, or the company? I was thinking more of the revenue of the company, uh, anything you, you're, you're comfortable yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, low low seven figures. I'm, I'm not supposed to say the the exact number, but um, yeah, low, lower, lower on the seven figure range. I ran it for about two and a half years from start to to when uh, the exit started. Wow. It's incredible, incredible speed. It, it did go pretty quick. Yeah. Um, you know, they, we got to a million dollar run rate, you know, $83,000 a month in sales in about a year. And then um, scaled up after that. And that's when I kind of first started, when I had a really good run for about six months. I first started um, thinking about selling it. It wasn't my original intent because I just don't think I, I, when I started the business, I'd never done this before. This was my first attempt. So I, I don't think I had the confidence to know that I, to, to plan for an exit on day one. But you know, once, once we were over the million dollar run rate for a while and I had a really good six months, that's probably closer to the $2 million run rate. You know, then I started thinking about, um, hey, maybe I, should sell this thing. You know, most of my net worth was was tied up in the business at the time. Um, I talked to a, a business broker, a uh, really nice guy, a smart guy named Corin Woodmass. Um, at the time, um, he told me like, hey, business is, looks like it's going great for you for the last six months, but the six months before that, you're still scaling up. You could sell now, but it'd be a mistake. So he told me to wait another six months till I have a really good trailing 12 and then look at at selling. And that was, that was the plan going forward after that. Got it. To what degree, you know, I, I want to go back to something you shared earlier, which was at the time, 65% of your revenue was coming from Amazon, 30% from Chewy, 5% mm -hmm. from your website. Uh, how vulnerable did you feel having such a high proportion of your revenue coming from Amazon? Um, good question. You know, that's that's kind of a a constant fear you have if Amazon is a big sales channel. I felt a lot better having Chewy there because a lot of people that have Amazon-based businesses don't. And yeah, Amazon could theoretically shut your business down overnight. Um, I think that was more of a fear a few years back 
you know, Amazon now has more of like a, a, a dedicated team in place. If there is an account suspension or if there is a, a hacker that gets into your account, like they, they have a better support system for that now. So I don't think it's as big of a fear, but, you know, you certainly lose sleep from time to time over it. I, I remember um, one time my wife and I were in, um, where were we? Norway or Norway or Finland. Um, we were staying in an ice hotel and it was just like an awesome vacation. Hmm. And I, I checked my, I made the mistake of checking my um, Amazon account and like all of my listings were gone. And it was like, oh my gosh, what in the hell? Um, now I, I got it fixed four hours later, but I, I was at the the ice bar in the ice hotel with my laptop, you know, <laughs> fixing this stuff. So this is not what vacation is supposed to be. Um but, you know, it was all fixed and all worth it in the end. And, and I know Amazon's support system for sellers, especially sellers that are doing significant revenue, has improved a lot. Um, but it's certainly a fear. And, uh, you know, a good thing is with Chewy or with, with any secondary marketplace or if it's your own website or whatever, if, if you have um, in the e-commerce space a secondary marketplace that makes up at least 20, 25 percent of your sales, you're more appealing to business buyers because it's not just a one channel business. Um, so that was a, a motivating factor for me to help grow Chewy as well. And how are the margins on Chewy compared to Amazon? Chewy's interesting because it's, you know, technically it's, it's wholesale. They're buying your products at wholesale. You're negotiating the price ahead of time. Uh, you know, they, they had not the best terms at net 90 terms. So you've got to make that work cash flow wise. Um, but you don't have the advertising expense. There's no pay-per-click with Chewy. Chewy handles a lot of the ads. So um, I don't remember what the exact you know profit margin percentage was. It's a it was a little less than Amazon, but at the same time, you're getting the benefit of Chewy advertising on your behalf. So it it was certainly worth doing. Got it. Uh, when I sold my company, I think the average profit margin I, I had for for everything was like 35% after all. All costs after after all your expenses. That was a gross profit margin or net, like after all of your expenses. Net after after everything. Wow. So yeah. So that's a pretty. Um, did you have any sense of what the company could be worth? Like you're, uh, you're, you know, you're into the, you're into the seven figures of revenue. Did you have a sense of what it could be worth? Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, pretty standard. Um, you know, when COVID, so I sold right before COVID, uh, which is both a blessing and a curse. COVID increased multiples on e-com businesses. So I missed out on that. At the time I sold it, pretty standard to get about 3x um, your profit. Um, it, was, it was pretty standard in the e-com multiple space. Like I said, after after COVID, that, that got high, you know, I got closer to five and, and all of that. So I, I did miss out on the timing there, but I also... Um, missed out on all of the uh, stress of, you know, hey, your, your factory shut down. You know, the shipping lines are a month behind and, and all of that. So I, I, I don't know. I, I regret the timing of my sale a little bit, but I also realized that I, I, I missed a lot of stress not having to deal with uh, not knowing what's going to happen with COVID restrictions and, and running a business. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's always easy to kind of play Monday morning quarterback, but, uh, sure. Sure. Uh, 
but it sounds like you had a fantastic exit. So let's talk about it. So you're, you get the advice, Hey, get a clean trailing 12 months worth of kind of revenue and profitability. So you can market this mm -hmm. thing. You do that and understand that, that your, your trigger or the reason that you wanted to sell was that it, it had, it had kind of grown to be a significant portion of your wealth. And, mm -hmm. and, and you started to feel a little bit like a need to diversify a, a bit as opposed to being so yeah. kind of all in on one, on one asset. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, I was probably a little burnout too, um, which would have been a factor, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I think your, your overview there is, is pretty accurate. So where do you go from there? What, what, what did you do to market the business? Did you hire someone to help? Yeah, I, I hired um, Corin Woodmass, who was the the broker that I told you about that uh, gave me the advice to wait another six months. Um, that that went well. Um, something that I did that I I think was very helpful to getting the business sold and, and getting me a little extra money on top of it was I pre-sourced the next two products for the brand um, and just did a very small like two hundred unit run of them you know, with their full labels and, and everything cost me a few grand but then i use that as a carrot to the buyers out there and so like hey a lot of times you know business buyers could have some hesitancy to move forward because they're not sure what the growth plan is for the business and it's one thing to have a, a document from the business owner but another thing to be like hey here's the physical product of, of the next two things to run here's your launch plan here's your listing, um, copywriting, here's, here's everything you need and kind of use that as a, a carrot for any potential buyer of, of, Hey, you're not, you're buying the cash flow that already exists, but here is not just in theory, here's an action, you know, your growth plan for the next six months. What made you decide to do that? A moment of inspiration. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just thought of that. I didn't read that anywhere. It was just something that I that came to me, and I said, "This seems like a good idea. It'll probably cost me five grand, and probably make me at least fifty. So it just seemed like it was smart to do. And I thought, you know, hey, if if I had never gone through a business sale before, if this falls through at the eleventh hour and they don't buy the business, I'm gonna move forward with growing it. And I've already got the next two products launched. So it just seemed like a like a smart move to make kind of gave you, you know, negotiation theorists talk about this idea of a BATNA best alternative to a negotiated agreement. The idea of like a right. plan B, it kind of gave you the ultimate plan B. So you're dangling mm -hmm. this carrot saying, Hey, there's these two products that you could launch. I've got the copywriting right. and the sourcing and there's a crate of them in my basement or whatever. Um, but if you don't want to buy the business, that's cool. I'm happy to just go launch it myself. <laughs> like it's a, yeah. it gave you the perfect plan B. Right. Right. Um, and I, I, I think that worked and I, I, I think that got me a higher dollar amount than I otherwise would have got. I would imagine. Were you tempted at all to, to just launch them anyways and just kind of scrap the plan to sell? Cause you know, one of the things I hear a lot from, from owners is, is they go through all the process of getting their business ready to like ready to sell, they clean up their books, they get all the employee agreements in play. You can do all this stuff. Right. And then right. they get to the end and they're like, well, this is now I don't want to sell because I, you know, the business is running more smoothly and like now I'm happy. Um, yeah. Did you get to the point where you're like, well, maybe I don't want to sell. Maybe I didn't want to launch these other two products. I mean, the thought crossed my mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, cl cleaning up the books was not fun. 
<laughs> you know, and but doing doing it forces you to do all the things that you should have been doing the whole time. So I mean, yeah, I, I got you know really like really good SOPs for everything. I went a step farther and I made I had written SOPs when I had video SOPs for everything in there. And, and like, it really did package up the business really nice where I was like, I could just keep doing this. Um, you know, the thought came to my mind of, do I possibly sell part of it and stay on? You know, I had all, all these kind of thoughts, but um, yeah, I think I, I was ready. And yeah, I, I, I took a year off after selling it and really didn't do, I had a mini retirement, I guess. Um, so I, I think I was just ready for, for a break too, but yeah, it certainly, it certainly was, was tempting. All right, and I so even let's, considered let's, trying to buy the business back a couple of years later, you know, so I've had, I've had the, the full range of thoughts and emotions on it. Did you say you, I cut you off. Did you say you have thought about buying the business back? Uh, I mean, we never really got into conversations about it, but yeah, I, I had a, a thought. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was paid out in in full. I mean, I, I got, I think, 70% of the payment up front, and then I got monthly checks for the next 18 months or whatever. And, and to their credit, they they paid me on time every time, and I got my full amount. Um, but I, I think the business was, when I checked a couple of years later, was not trending the way I would have liked. Um, so I, I just reached out to them with the thought of looking at reacquiring it, but they, they were not interested in that. And, um, they wanted to keep going themselves and, and great for them. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't miss sales tax. I don't miss, you know, those kind of things. Sure. And I, I, I still get to advise other people and do the creative part of it. So I still get to scratch that itch anyway. So I'm, I'm happy with the role I'm, I've got now. Yeah, I'm sure. So let's walk into how corn uh, marketed it. So, so you've, you've cleaned it up. Did, did he kind of shop it, list it? What, how did, like, how did he kind of market it? Yeah. You know, we, we spent some significant time together and I talked to his team and, you know, they put together a whole package about me, about the business, all of that. And then they, they shopped it out to, their network of buyers and, and put it out publicly uh, <clears throat> as well. How many um, offers did you get? I think we had three offers. Um, but yeah, the I chose this one just because there was no strings attached. There was one that was a little higher, but they wanted um, basically an earn out uh, where they have full control of the company, but the company still has to hit sales metrics. And I wasn't willing to do that because it's, it's, if I had full control of the company, we had to hit sales metrics. That's one thing. But if I'm handing it over to you and then our interests are not aligned, um, that's a different story from, from my perspective. So uh, I, I turned down a, a higher offer, but um, went with one that I, I really liked the people that bought it. They seemed honest, good people, and, and um, they, they didn't have any strings attached to the offer. Got it. And so it was, uh, are we able to talk about multiples? I know you were, you were at the time it was around three X was the going rate. Did you get around three X for yeah, yeah, I got, I got, I got around there. Um, we were able to do, uh, I'm sure your, your audience knows what like ad backs are and, and all that. And you know, Corin and his team were, were able to, um, you know, in, in a reasonable fair way, but get me a, a good EBITDA based on, 
on ad backs and, and things of that nature, and then got a good or a fair multiple based on that. Yeah. So, so for my audience, uh, uh, which I was referring to is sort of creating an adjusted EBITDA where you're effectively trying to strip out any one-time expenses that you're not going to, you know, the acquirer is not going to have again. And, and uh, right. try to pretty up the EBITDA as much as possible while still being a fair and accurate representation of what the business will do in their hands. And so they went through that process. Okay. And, and if I'm understanding it correctly, you got 70% of the cash up front and 30% was um, kind of, if I understand, sort of seller financing, meaning you agreed to accept yes. that 30%. Over, I think you said thirty-six months or eighteen months. How long was 18 that? Months. Yeah. How much? Eighteen months. Eighteen. 18. Months. Yep. So Sorry. yeah, I got a, I got a, you know, I got a seven-figure check in the mail, and then I got monthly payments for um, eighteen months. That. And those started. monthly payments, was there an interest rate associated with that? It was it just a flat payment every month? It's flat payment. Yeah. And and what and again, the reason I'm asking this is is we've just had a podcast that will have probably been released the week before this one goes live, Chad, where um, we had Bakari Keel on talking about uh, buying a company using debt. And we talked about the different sort of forms of debt from an SBA mm -hmm. loan to, in this case, vendor financing, where you, the seller, provide some debt to the, to the acquirer. And one of the things that we were talking about is, is, you know, what happens, uh, and where does the acquirer get the, the money to buy the business in addition to the, whatever vendor financing you provide? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and so did you have any sort of lens into where the acquirer, in this case, it was a private equity group that we've decided to to, to keep anonymous for the purpose of our conversation. Did you ever find out where they got the money? Did they borrow it uh, or did they have um, cash on hand? Well, they're, they're a Canadian entity, so I don't think they can get, you know, U.S. SBA loans. Um, I know they ran four or five other e-com businesses at the time. Um, I am assuming they had significant cash holdings. Um it's possible they brought on other investors or something. I was I wasn't privy to those conversations. I just, you know, I got cash at the closing table and then monthly payments after that. But I don't know if they, if there's a Canadian SBA loan they got or or something of of the sort. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean there there are certainly interesting ways to buy businesses now. Like um, there's a few different people that have training on buying businesses with no money out of your own pocket, and you can do inventory financing and, you know, seller financing, a combination of all these different things. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure where, where they sourced their, their funding for me. Got it. Yeah. And I, and I think the reason I was, I was asking that is, is more around as a sort of cautionary tale to, to my listeners. Um, you know, almost always, if you're going to provide seller financing, you would sit behind the primary financial institution, the acquirer has borrowed the money to buy your business in terms of a recourse. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming that would have been the case had they borrowed the money to buy your business that you, you know, those six, 18 months worth of payments would have been at risk if there was a, a bank, you know, if they, if they defaulted on a bank loan. Yeah. I, I don't think that was the case. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, I don't remember that exactly, but I, I got paid on time every month and, and they paid every dime they owed me. How did you get comfortable that they were going to honor that commitment? Like there's a lot of people out there kind of not shady characters sort of promising to, to make monthly payments and, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good for it. But how did you get comfortable yeah. that they were, they were going to honor that 18 months worth of cash flow? Well, funny story for you along those lines. I had another you know, much, much smaller business. I, I, bought a, I bought a small business and I'm not going to name any names or throw somebody under the proverbial bus, but as a warning to your listeners, I bought a small like Apple watch band Shopify store after I sold this business. Uh, I resold that later, um, 100% on seller financing. Um, this, this is a small, you know, 30, 40 grand business. I mean, no, nothing big at all. Um, but just as, as an exercise in, in buying and selling businesses creatively. And um, the guy made two payments of a couple grand each, and then he went missing, um, found out he went to jail. And that's why my payments stopped. So there is risk with that. In, in the terms of selling pets or kids too, bigger business, do more due diligence. Um, yeah, we think we had written into the contract that if if payments, uh, monthly payments fail, you know, I, I get to keep the seven figure check initially, but could also have recourse for taking over the business back if they don't make the payments. So there was there was collateral there. But yeah, you, you don't want to just accept somebody's promise without anything behind it. I see. Um, so you like had recourse to get the, the, the business back if if those payments were not to come forward. Yes. That's super helpful. That's super helpful for sure. Um, yeah, because you know, if you get to keep the, the big chunk of the money, but then would also get the business back, it, it's kind of it's well worth the risk of that 30%. Yeah, with three offers on the table, did did you or corn in this case? Uh, sort of try to gin up the offers by playing one off the other and trying to get them up at all. Did, did were you able to yep. get any movement on them? Yeah, yeah, um, was and I, I think I can say this. Um, I, I got the winning offer went up fifty grand or so, fifty fifty five grand. Okay, um, just based on that. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to say like final price or anything, but got got a decent amount of movement. Um, and you know that's when I, I also highlighted those two new products that I sourced in that letter to them. You know, like, hey, we're in a competing offer situation. I like yours, but this other one's higher. Here's your growth plan. What can you do to make your offer better before I make my final decision? Um, and got a, got a little bit of movement there. So that's interesting. So you held back the the plan with the two new products and, until the, the sort of initial offers were in place and then brought that out as a sweetener. To get them to lift, I, I honestly don't remember if that's how it went or not. I, I know I included that. I, I wrote a letter um, and included that in the uh, that negotiation at the end. But I, I think we also talked about it ahead of time. Okay. But I, I think it was just a hey, as a reminder, we've done this. If you're looking at other businesses to buy, they probably are dependent on just one sales channel, or we have multiple sales channels. We have a growth plan. Other people are willing to pay more. The reason I like your offer is is the no strings attached thing, but you've got to bump it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. How did you stay involved after the sale? Because you know, obviously, if you were to just hand over the keys, mm -hmm. I know you had the the standard operating procedures, but you know, the risk that a business wouldn't continue, I would imagine, was significant if you weren't at least 
notionally involved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried to be as, as helpful as I could be. I, I think in the contract, I was required to be available for an hour a day for like 60 days. Um, they didn't use it that much. There were a few times I got on calls with them and, and helped them, but um, they, they required less than I was contractually obligated to help with. Did you have any employees? Uh, I had a, a couple of VAs, but I, I didn't have any employees. This is crazy. So you're like living in the cabin in the woods and you've got like multi-million dollar business and no employees. This is it's incredible. No, no employees. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I used um, VAs and I tried to make everything as systematized as, as possible um, where that wasn't necessary. The biggest time thing really was customer service. And, and I had a, a really good VA, um, US-based woman um, that uh, I think worked from home and, and um her name was Stacy, and she was wonderful, and, and you know, did a good job. And was somebody I could I could trust, and and all that. But that was most of the time was really her spent doing customer service. But I, I had lots of systems in place for that. Um, like a big pillar of of my business's success that that we did was like a, a user generated content charity mission, and that took up a lot of her time. Um, that and customer service. And, and this was something that like I, I teach anybody that I mentor this strategy, but basically you find a hyper specific charity mission that aligns with your brand. In our case, we funded um, basically GoFundMe accounts for dogs with cancer. And it wasn't like a, hey, we donate to this charity that helps dogs with cancer. It's like, hey, here's the, it's called the Magic Bullet Fund, but it's basically GoFundMe for dogs. It's like, hey, here's the exact dog, you know, Brutus the Bulldog or whatever. Um, they need, they're raising $3,000 to pay for his cancer treatment. So what we would do is I'd run these, these uh, campaign for lack of a better term, but we'd say right on the product, you know, Hey, send in a photo of your dog and the product you purchased, and then we'll donate a portion of your sale to fund this individual pet with cancer's surgery. Um, so what that would do is my VA would get all these photos of dogs and, and our products that we can use as user generated content. She would then reply back with a photo collage of the customer's dog and the dog that we're donating to. And we'd send it back to them and say, hey, you know, your dog, um, Brock, is helping this, you know, Brutus the Bulldog. And it'd be this cool little collage. They didn't know it was coming. So most of them were, oh, that's so cool. And then they'd share it on their social media. So we'd get ads from that. But it also opened up a, a line of communication with a customer that, really likes us now and likes what we stand for. So then we could be like, you know, hey, so so glad you liked the photo. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for tagging us. By the way, how do you like the product? And they say, oh, it's great. Awesome. Great to hear. Would you mind leaving that as a review? Or if it's, hey, I like what you guys stand for, but this product didn't work on my dog. Instead of them going and leaving a one-star review, we have this open line of communication and they like us. Hey, sorry that didn't work out. I've proactively refunded you. No need to return it. Feel free to keep it. But um, you already got your money back. Have a great day. And that prevented um, negative reviews as well. So this, you know, I kind of I coined it like growth through giving. And like this is kind of a a big pillar of, of my business's success. Um, and even though you're like giving money away, it's it's a profit center because you're getting so many more sales because of it. Um, that, that I attribute a lot of my business growth to that, that particular strategy. That's a cool, uh, that's a cool notion. And, and it, it was 
kind of tied to this kind of micro charity, whereas instead of giving money to sick yeah. kids or to the hospital in your local area, it's like, no, you know, this dog Rover needs this treatment on this day. Right. You know, make right. We, we are all, I think, so conditioned to when you hear about some big company giving to charity, it's in one ear out the other. It's like every company in the world does 1% of the planet or we support this charity. And, and to be frank, like no one cares because it's, you don't know if, if, you know, your donation, when you round up at the grocery store, if that's paying some charity consultants, six figure salary, or if it's actually helping anybody. So when you can make like a hyper personalized thing, instead of like, you know, we help kids in need, it's like, Hey, we are funding this little girl named Rebecca. We're funding her adoption, you know? And it's like, this is her story. And it's like when people can really relate to it and know that what they're doing is actually helping, then they care, you know, whereas it's just like, Hey, your purchase helped this nameless charity. No one cares. Yeah. 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 We've been giving as a company, uh, and, and through our built to sell community, uh, to Kiva, uh, entrepreneurs for many, many years now, uh, Kiva.org. But one of the magics of, you know, things about Kiva that's great is, is you can actually see the people you're funding, yeah. you see their stories and it's, uh, it's right. Cool. That's so much more powerful than, than just, Hey, this is going to the general fund of some charity and we hope it does good. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And we'll put and we'll put some stuff on the show notes for for that. Hey, this has been a great uh, conversation. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you had three offers. You you talked to lots of people. Uh, you had a great broker. Uh, what was the slimiest, most questionable thing an acquirer tried to do to you? Uh, pull the wool over your eyes or manipulate you in a in a in an underhanded way. You know, I, I, I don't think that happened. The, the only the only thing that would be close to that, and I, I wouldn't even call this slimy, really, is just one of the offers, like like we talked about, was an, an earnout where my payment is dependent on the business hitting certain metrics. Um, but I wouldn't be running the business anymore. They would be. So that could potentially be slimy because they could purposely not hit the metrics so they didn't have to pay me. Um, it's a fairly standard offer, though, that, that it's not unheard of for offers like that to go through. So I, I hesitate to call that slimy, but it was something I wasn't willing to accept. In, in that case, what proportion of the total offer, quote unquote, was at risk in an earnout on a percentage basis? Um, I don't remember exactly. I, I was still going to get the majority of it. Uh, more than half of it up front, but I, th- I think it was like 30 to 40% was, was an earnout over the course of a couple of years, if I remember correctly. Um, now I would, I would have got a hundred grand extra, I suppose, which, you know, is, would have been nice, but, um, that's two years of not knowing if it's going to happen and also having no control over if it happens or not, because it's in somebody else's control. So, um, to me, it made more sense to go with the sure thing. I mean, you know, we've heard from a lot of guests that selling a company can be an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you said it yourself. You've got these two adorable dogs. The brand is all about them. And, and this mm-hmm. is obviously an important part of your life. You spent two and a half years. You built an amazing company. 
and sold it. And for some people that can, can be emotional, both good and bad. And I just wondered if there were emotions that you experienced either to the good or to the bad in, in the process. Yeah. I mean, I, I think all the emotions were good. I mean, I guess leading up to it, they're, you know, stress, you know, and, and getting all my bookkeeping in order and then sitting down and making sure all the details are in place. That was stressful. Um, and, you know, we were trying to finalize the sale, you know, Christmas of 2019 and ended up selling it in early 2020. So kind of just that holiday season was was a stressful one. But as far as the sale of the business, it, it was mostly positive emotions. There was a, a little bit of a sense of weird letting go of this, you know, but um, I think more, more, you know, I was not in like a arrogant way, hopefully, but, you know, proud that I was able to, to do that on, on my first try. And um, I, so I was, I was happy there. And um, that, yeah, I mean, I was proud of the business I was handing off to, to somebody else. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was mostly happy, you know, when, on the day it sold, um, you know, since like my dogs were the inspiration for the business, but they were also the mascots, you know, they were, in, I had photos of them and lots of ads and all that. So, you know, I think we, I, I cooked either a tomahawk steak or a filet mignon or something really, really good for the dogs. Um, and then my wife and I just had some champagne, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was mostly good emotions, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You strike me, Chad, as, as, as a, uh, relatively unemotional entrepreneur. I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs that um, who 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 kind of feel like their business is their is their baby, their employees, right. and their kids, and that their company is their legacy. And and I'm not hearing any of that from you. I'm I'm hearing, and I want to. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I I want to just validate this that that you wanted lifestyle independence. You wanted to build some wealth. You mm -hmm. identified a spot in the market. You built a great company in two or three years and you flipped it. And it's not some big emotional thing for you. It's like another business deal. Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, I mean, you know, legacy is like a weird term because I think that encompasses so much more of your life than just a business venture. So like yeah. this... When it's all said and done, this will be a small part of my legacy, I guess. But I, I don't, I, I don't find my identity in it or anything of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm probably a little more emotionally backed off than some. You know, I, I didn't really think of the company as my kid. You know, I think of my pets as my kids, hence the name of the company. But um, you know, there there were no. There were no tears when I sold the company or anything like that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you prepare for the exit? You, you mentioned that you're a big podcast listener. You go walking in the woods and listen to guys like Ryan Moran. Were there people or people you could point our listeners to? Um, they already listen to Bits on Radio, so that's 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 you know they're already doing that. So are there other people that they should be following on social or listening to on podcasts? What who are who's good? Who can you recommend? Um, I, I like you know this this is on the tax saving stuff, but Tom Wheelwright. Um, I listened to a lot of his tax saving strategies before I sold the business. Um, okay, and he had good tax saving stuff while running it too, as far as, you know, inventory related write-offs and, and things like that. But 
Um, when I was going for the sale of the business, I was listening to a lot of, of tax planning stuff because um, that's, you know, that's your biggest expense. A hundred percent. More than more than commission to a broker, more than, you know. So yeah. what you can do to to minimize that expense um, is a high priority. So that's that's what I spent more time listening to um, than anything else you know, as I got closer to exit. That's great. We'll put Tom's uh, coordinates in the show notes at builttocell.com. In addition to the champagne and the tomahawk steak for the dogs, did you buy yourself a trophy of any sort to commemorate this win? Um, I, I bought a Tesla. And that was kind of my only, uh, I bought a Tesla and a Traeger grill. So th- those were my, I, like, I didn't go get anything ridiculous. Yeah, you know, we live in the same house. Like I didn't go buy, you know, I, I put a lot of, I put most of the money into investments um, with, you know, some better than others. Uh, most of the money into investments, but I, I, I got a Tesla and a Traeger grill and, and we got my wife a new car too. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you had, uh, you had a nice shopping spree, which I appreciate. I, I'm a big believer in having some sort of physical uh, uh, representation of the win so you can look back on it. Uh, I'm thrilled. So what, what now, other than tooling around town in your Tesla, what are you up to now? And like, what's, uh, what's going to be busy these days? Yeah, you know, we talked about this a little off camera before we got on, but um, I do a little bit of Consulting for e-com companies, but more as a side gig I, for dog-related brands. I, I have a, a company called Some Dog Millionaires. So SomeDogMillionaires.com is, is my dog consulting thing where I've got a couple programs there. And if people want to reach out to you on social, is LinkedIn the best uh, best strategy? It's probably the worst, actually. Oh, okay. Um, I, I check LinkedIn once in a while, but I'm not a big LinkedIn user. I, I usually am just, I, I message people on Facebook and that tends to work, work best. Okay. Um, if you message me on LinkedIn, I'll see it eventually. Um, but we'll I, put I don't your, your Facebook, uh, coordinates there so people can DM yeah. me on Facebook. Um, Hey Chad, this was fun. Thanks for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's great talking to you. And there you have it for today's podcast between John and Chad. If you enjoyed today's episode, then hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support the podcast, I'd encourage you to share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy listening to today's episode. Also, if you want to watch this full video interview, you can head over to our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video interview between John and Chad today. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including some more information on BATNAs, be sure to visit Chad's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. And if you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.